the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We know that from Scripture, we are made in the very image of God and that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And so you look at these connections and wonder to yourself just how deep do they go? And by that, I mean, when we talk about our relationship with God, we certainly understand it. We relate to it on the spiritual plane. But does it go deeper than that? Journalist Rob Mole joins us now. He's written a new book called What Your Body Knows About God, How We Are Designed to Connect, Serve, and Thrive. He has written uh, extensively on this topic, um, particularly related to health and health care issues. He's also editor-at-large with Christianity Today. You've also read his work, no doubt, in the Wall Street Journal and elsewhere. And he serves as communications officer to the president of World Vision. And, Rob, great to have you on the program. Well, thank you, Craig. It's great to be here. And it would seem at a certain level that the notion of there being a deeper connectivity with God would be a logical one. I mean, given the fact that he uh, breathed very life into us and that we are made in his image. That's right. That's exactly where I was about to go, was to talk about that image in Genesis where God forms the human being, forms Adam out of the dust of the ground and breathes into him the breath of life. So certainly we are spirit and flesh, and our faith, our spirituality, our connections to God do not, are not, do not just exist in a kind of ethereal plane, but they, they go down to, into who we are as, as physical beings, as uh, part of God's good creation. There have been some interesting studies done, and we frequently heard this from physicians, and not those with an agenda. And I put that disclaimer in there because some eavesdropping on our conversation tonight, Rob might say, well, yeah, sure, these are Christian doctors, so they're primed to prove a point. No, physicians who, who make no claim to any sort of uh, religious affiliation whatsoever, but will say that they notice something unique and different about the patients who are praying patients, and that is that the recovery rate rates seem to be better, survival rates following uh, significant surgeries, things of this sort seem to be better, attitudes seem to be better, there seems to be a marked connectivity between the health of one's body and one's relationship or connectivity to God. In any of your research, have you seen that borne out in any sort of a, a deeper scientific fashion? Well, you know, a survey of uh, HMO executives found that 94% of them believe that prayer helps medical treatment and speeds recovery of patients. Uh, something like 80% or higher of uh, doctors say the same thing. Uh, I think that the, these people, you know, and I was a, I was a hospice volunteer myself, and, and you, don't, you don't get around people who are dealing with physical illnesses who aren't also in search of um, in search of something greater, and those who have that connection, uh, connection to God, who are able to um, draw on that uh, deep well of faith, 
they're able to they're able to often deal with those illnesses in a much more productive way and often that means that uh, literally you can measure their immune systems and that has an effect they're they're able to respond to disease in healthier ways people who go to church tend to tend to live longer people who um, are engaged in spiritual practices do one researcher at uh, Duke University found or he estimated that the effects of not going to church, uh, the effects of the lack of spiritual, uh, lack of uh, spiritual involvement, was a- as unhealthy for people as smoking a pack of cigarettes every day for forty years. Wow. Now we we certainly uh, can can talk about connectivity uh, of of the body's positive reaction to positive experiences. There are experiences that help help to release serotonin, and we feel better. We have a sense of being uplifted. Things of of this sort. H- have we seen some scientific connection then in that arena in terms of um, involvement in spiritual life? I'm talking about things like prayer, like praise and worship. I mean, I would imagine. If if from a biblical perspective, we are designed, created in his image, and to serve and worship him, that it would almost uh, go without saying that the body would have some kind of a mechanism that, uh, that positively reacts when we're connecting with God at that level. Yeah, you know, uh, one of the newest and among the most successful treatments of people with depression is prayer, simple prayer. Uh, now, that doesn't mean uh, pray a few times and, and Jesus will heal you uh, right away, but it does mean that, you know, we tend to go immediately to the, the sort of pharmaceutical uh, uh, area in order to treat these things. But uh, one of the most common prescriptions now is for people to, to turn to prayer, and it's effective, uh, and it works. And it works because prayer is literally healthy for your brain. It's good for your brain for you to be engaged in a spiritual pursuit, uh, gaining uh, a sense of purpose and meaning in your life. Uh, It's healthy for your brain to be contemplating God and spend some time uh, meditating over Scripture, spend some time thinking of all that uh, Jesus, uh, especially at this time of year, came to to uh, be a human being on our earth, we can consider all the things that he did. He did, and when we spend some time in that sort of contemplation, it's incredibly healthy for our brain. Have scientists taken the time, Rob, to um, uh, to watch the way the brain reacts or responds to? Um, for example, a praise and worship experience. I know that when I go into church and there is a rousing time of praise and worship. Um, it, it, it uplifts your spirit. Whatever troubles that you might have carried into the church with you from the week behind you uh, seem to just sort of melt away. And, and you, you definitely feel as if you've made a connection with God. I would wonder if scientists have ever taken the time to be able to study the brain and see what's going on at that time when people are experiencing that, that worshipful connection with God. Yeah, they sure have. And uh, one study almost jokingly said uh, when people are in worship, it's as though they're uh, addicted to drugs. Uh, one of the natural brain chemicals is oxytocin, and uh, heroin actually mimics that. Uh, and so you get, a, in a sense, according to uh, the researchers, um, 
you get a sense of this spiritual high. You are um, you, you're with all of these people. There's a there's a social aspect there. Uh, you're with people that you know, people that you care about, people that you see week to week, maybe throughout the week, and that gives you a sense of uh, th- this uh, social uplift. And then connecting to connecting to God in in that kind of environment, it's a unique thing. And and uh, one of the ways that our brains are involved is through the through the production and reception of oxytocin. Uh, it's a it's a normal uh, brain chemical that helps us to to sort of feel uplifted. And um, and that seems to be one way that that. Our brains are designed to have that special feeling of connection to God. You know, God works in the, through physical means all, all the time when he works in our lives. And in that moment, uh, that, uh, that uh, little boost of oxytocin is one of those ways. Yeah, it's interesting. During this holiday season, so often we hear reports of people getting uh, deeper in depression. They maybe have lost a loved one during this time of the year, so it's a it's a difficult time for them. We see higher rates of suicide amongst individuals during the holiday season. What a wonderful message of encouragement for people to understand that a relationship with Jesus Christ goes uh, well beyond not just God's concern for our our relationship to him and the afterlife, but even God's concern toward how we are doing here on earth in the here and now, and that the benefits of that personal one-on-one relationship with him go so deep and so so wonderfully connected that it can change and elevate even our mood and and, uh, the way we feel about ourselves. With us today is Rob Mole. His book is called What Your Body Knows About God, How We Are Designed to Connect, Serve, and Thrive. We'll take a time out and come back to more of our visit as this edition of Lifeline continues. Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Think for a moment about the feelings that you first had when you first met your spouse, for example. Uh, there, there was something that happened deep inside of you. There was a connectivity that occurred. We are wired for intimacy, and our bodies react to it when, it when it's right. It stands to reason, therefore, that in that same sense in which the physical part of us reacts to uh, a loved one, there is that same sense of the way in which our body reacts to intimacy with God. We are, after all, created in very God's image. I've always been fascinated by the passage early on in Jeremiah where God speaks of having known Jeremiah while he was yet in his mother's womb. And so with that thought in mind, we're exploring this topic today of what our body knows about God. And with us today is um, author and journalist uh, Rob Mole. And, and Rob, toward that end, I guess it stands to reason as much as we, we see that wonderful release of all those positive chemicals that go on in the brain when we're, when we're close to our, uh, our spouse, when we're intimate with our spouse, same thing is true then, I guess, of God. Yeah, it sure is. I mean, when when researchers put uh, put someone into a, a brain scanner, it seems kind of sacrilegious to stick someone into a, a big machine and then and then tell them to pray. But we can find out some really interesting things when when that happens. 
And one of the interesting things is that the brain is working in this, in this unique way. It's uh, different than if you were having another kind of emotional experience. So they looked at people remembering uh, fond, uh, fond memories of, uh, of friendship, feeling perhaps even the closest sorts of friendships that they've ever had and remembering special moments. And, and then they looked at those people remembering special moments with God and what that looked like in the brain. And, and they're actually really different things. The brain's doing something different, but not something unusual or not something that the brain isn't designed to do. Uh, and one of the fascinating things is as we as we get closer to God and as we use our brain in this way to contemplate and, and meditate and pray to God, the brain is actually enhancing its, uh, its senses of compassion, sort of the brain muscles around compassion and social awareness. So as we, as we grow in our love for God, we actually grow in our love for other people. So as you, as you mentioned, you know, as we connect with people, we're also connecting with God. As we connect with God, we're also connecting with people. When you were writing this book, in the middle of this project, um, your wife went through a pretty difficult experience, um, which I, I guess made aspects of, of this book a little bit challenging. Talk to us about what was going on with your wife, uh, Clarissa. Yeah. We were about six weeks after the birth of our child, and, and Clarissa started having panic attacks. I'd never seen someone with a panic attack before, but it's a, it's a frightening thing. Uh, this overpowering sense of, uh, a sense of uh, that you're going to die, this sense of something is drastically wrong, um, I need to uh, uh, you know, my, my, my life is unraveling, uh, my world is unraveling, and I'm going to die any minute. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's actually a horrible thing to witness. And this was going on over and over and over again. And what we found as we, as we uh, sought help and, and talked to people and talked to experts was it's actually uh, not unusual for someone after, after birth to go through a post postpartum anxiety or postpartum depression. Uh, so what, one of the things that was happening was that the levels of neurochemicals that she was able to use, neurochemicals like we've talked about, serotonin and, and oxytocin and things like that, were at a really, really low level. So she, she wasn't able to, to function properly. And what, I, what, I, what the challenge for me as I'm writing this book and writing about the, the glorious design of our bodies to be able to worship God and to, and to love others, was that here, the, you know, in this sort of miraculous moment of, of birth and welcoming new life into the world, uh, we're also dealing with uh, my wife's body that had gone so drastically wrong. Uh, and I had to, I had to find, I had to seek some answers around. Well, how are we? What, what am I supposed to think about? Especially if I'm going to continue writing this book, what am I supposed to think about? Our bodies design when they go wrong. How am I supposed to think about God and suffering? And and these were these were pretty tough questions for a while. Digging into that, and I think it was important for the integrity of the book to do so. Uh, what were some of the conclusions that you were able to draw for yourself? Well, you know, you look at you look at scripture and uh, especially at Job and God doesn't really give Job a a terrific answer when he when he wants to know why he went through this suffering. Uh God essentially answers, I'm God. 
um, and and one of the things that we see in Jesus is that uh, even Jesus suffers, uh, and not so much that that uh, God gives us an answer or, or the kind of explanation that we are seeking when we ask God about suffering, but but we see that Jesus has suffered with us. And so as I looked, in, you know, in the in the physiology and the biology, what what is what are we supposed to? How do we make sense of this? One thing I found was that one of the healthiest things that we can do when we are suffering is actually to help other people. Uh, I talked to somebody who had gone through a similar experience of panic attacks, and uh, and he went to a, a Christian psychologist, uh, not knowing that this this woman was Christian, and she said, "Okay, your your path back to health to health is going to be to help people." And she gave him a task every Monday. She she gave him a task of, uh, you know, go to the soup kitchen, uh, help someone across the street, do these very um, very mundane but very important actions of helping another person. And that was actually his route back to health. Uh, so our bodies are designed uh, to to be helping other people, to respond to suffering. And I think that that's that was the answer for me that uh, when when humans were suffering alienation to from God he sent his son to die for us uh, in response and and when when we are suffering and when we see others suffering we're designed to respond and and alleviate that help alleviate that pain we will find individuals that will for example during this time of year uh, during the holidays uh, suffer from one form or another of depression that in more extreme forms can certainly lead to panic attacks similar to what uh, your wife is experiencing on a postpartum basis. And it's fascinating to note how often, as you suggest, that just the very idea of getting the focus off of how you're feeling and your experience and focusing on somebody else whose circumstances or needs are, are, are bigger or more severe, how that can entirely change your outlook and suddenly you realize, wait a minute, I'm here doing all of this and engaged in helping this person, and I'm no longer feeling depressed. I, I, I'm no longer having to deal with the panic attacks. And it's amazing to see the way God sort of builds into our system this ability to, to do unto others that oftentimes be a form of worship as well. And in doing so, all of a sudden, the body has a way of, of healing itself, doesn't it? That's right. You know, one of the one of the interesting things uh, of research recently is that you know mental health is uh, you, your mental health is best when you're not really thinking about yourself. Um, when, as C.S. Lewis talks about, you can't go around uh, looking for how can I experience joy today. Uh, you experience joy when you're finding joy in the things that you do, uh, and in the same way, mental health. Um, you know, we are healthier as people. When we are engaged, when we are concerned not for ourselves, uh, but for those around us, those who we care about, those that we are living our lives with, our family members, our friends, uh, those, those in our church communities, uh, the people at work, that's really where we find meaning and purpose and then therefore a healthy life. Rob Mole, the book called What Your Body Knows About God, How We're Designed to Connect 
Serve and Thrive. Rob, thanks so much for the insights. The book, by the way, published by InterVarsity Press. You'll find it at Bay Area Christian Bookstores. Great holiday gift. Also through Amazon.com. Thanks again to uh, Rob Mole for being with us. Details, too, about his work on the web at RobMole, M-O-L-L, dot com. Get you an update on traffic. Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Hey, ask yourself the question, do you love your kids? Certainly. I think every parent says, I love my kids. They can be a little bit problematic sometimes. There are days when, you know, if we could turn back the clock, we might have thought <laughs> differently. But overall, sure, we love our kids. But how do we love our kids? And does it, in the end, make a difference? There's so much to parenting these days. And unfortunately, it's the one really big, important job in life where a lot like marriage, you don't get a handbook. There's no manual. There's no advanced pre-qualifications. You just kind of dive in and you go. And if you came, fortunately, from a good, strong family and uh, your parents did a pretty good job raising you, you can kind of model your parenting skills after them. And if you didn't, well, you think about what mom and dad did and then do the opposite, right? But in the end, some of the keys uh, to parenting can come down to not just that we love our children, but how we love our kids. That, coincidentally, is the title of a new book released by our guest on this segment of Lifeline, Mylan and Kay Yurkovich. And uh, welcome both of you to the program. Hi, Craig. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Great to be with you. I, I think of the the five languages of love, and now you have brought out the five love styles. And let, let's spend a moment when we talk about this. I think, you know, at, at basic level, people think, well, of course I love my kids. And, and sometimes I've learned from people like James Dobson, I have to employ tough love. But what are these five different styles of loving? Well, essentially... Um, you end up seeing different people like the avoider parent who, male or female, is the emotionally detached parent. Uh, you have the pleaser who's the rescuing parent who wants everybody to be happy. You have what we call the vacillator parent who's dedicated but highly preoccupied and sometimes present, sometimes not, also a person who gets angry. A controller, the autocratic parent, and then the victim, the childlike parent. And all those styles, of course, there are good aspects, there are negative aspects, there are benefits, there are, I, mean, I, I suppose it's like anything, you know, the, the, the negatives weigh in with the positives. As we look at these different styles of parenting, give me some insight in terms of where do they come from? Is this something that, that's learned behavior? Do we model it after the way our parents loved us? What? Yes, we, we really do get our first lessons about love from our own families growing up. But we don't often stop to really ask ourselves, what exactly were those lessons and what was good about them and what, what would I like to change about them? And, you know, we were married 15 years and parented for 15 years without ever really looking back to answer or ask that question. So we, we come out of our homes with an, an imprint of intimacy or beliefs about relational styles and each one of these that Mylan just mentioned um, have some specific issues that often we aren't aware of. Well, let's talk about some of the things that we're not aware of. Okay, and well, for example, I was the avoider parent, and so I came from a home where um, my parents did a great job raising responsible, self-sufficient kids, that we performed well. Um, but where they, where they were weak, in 
and I don't think they realized this, was they were weak in emotional connections. We were never asked about feelings as, as a kid and with my sisters. We were never comforted when we were emotionally distressed. We were sort of left to figure that out on our own. So I adopted those rules and parented my own kids in the same way, and I think most avoider parents, male or female, are, are going to be task-oriented and they're going to applaud mastery and independence. And sometimes I expected my kids to be further along than they were really developmentally ready to be. And, you know, when, when my kids were frustrated or, um, you know, upset, I really didn't have the skills to draw out their emotions or ask them what they were feeling because I didn't really know what I was feeling. Now, toward that end, I, I'm, I'm curious, Mylon, how did your parenting style uh, work in harmony or, or against? Was there a sense of balance between the two of you? Well, I like your optimistic start. <laughs> did they work in harmony? Well, actually, they didn't because as a pleaser parent, I wanted everybody to be happy. And I was a fear-based parent, which is what uh, pleasers are. And, you know, what happens is is that Pleaser parents often, even though they're fun and they create warm, nurturing environments, sometimes their highest value is safety, protection, and keeping everybody happy, and they, prote- they want to protect kids. And they can overly protect kids and ultimately uh, discourage exploration and so on and so forth. Does so, this also tend to be somebody that perhaps avoids conflict, wants to keep, you know, just, let's not ruffle the feathers, let's keep absolutely. everybody happy? Absolutely. So there can be some, so, some, some might regard this then, Mylon, as, as a, a lack of discipline at some levels. Well, that's perhaps true. Uh, pleaser parents are not as respected as other parents, um, often because they're pushovers, and they can, the kids can get by with stuff, and the parent doesn't want to create friction that causes the child to become angry at them because they're fear-based, and they like to have everybody in a, a happy place. And so they really can't offer... Um, what you said earlier in your introduction, uh, like James Dobson said, they have a hard time with this tough love concept, and people do need a good balance of tough and tender, or as it says in John, truth and grace. You know, there's so much work that needs to be done here because it, it occurs to me as we as we in life go about finding that perfect life partner, you know, we, we typically think about compatibility in terms of, you know, where do you like to vacation and, you know, how do you like to decorate the house and where do you want to live and how many kids would you like to, to have? We, we think about manners in which husband and wife will mesh together relationally, but I would suspect there are few that would sit down in advance of making a decision to get married and say, so tell me about your parenting style, you know? Well, that's true. And then if you get two parenting styles that are identical or are, are polar opposites, and as you've suggested by the title of the book, in, in five different styles of parenting, uh, it would almost seem as if if somebody uniquely, and I would suspect it might be a combination where some people are, have, you know, high tendencies toward one and a lower tendency toward another so that there's a number represented. But what happens, for example, Kay, when there's only two represented, the other three are missing? Does that really create havoc? Well, you know, these styles are a little different from the five love languages that you mentioned earlier because that's just a you know, positive way that your spouse would like to sh- be shown love. These are more injuries. In other words, when each one of these styles represents some sort of inability to create emotional connection and to really create 
that balance Mylon was talking about between love and nurturing and discipline and boundaries. And so as the avoider, I was overly rigid and not able to emotionally connect, and Mylon was too free-spirited and, you know, unable to set those boundaries. But, um, you know, the vacillator parent is the third one, and, you know, their um, ideal is to have a family that is just stands out and is superior. And what the vacillator doesn't really realize is that they are very, very sensitive to rejection, and oftentimes they're very preoccupied with how all their relationships are going, whether that's their marriage or their friendships. And it, it takes a lot of headspace for them. And so many times when they're present with their child, they're really not all there. And so what the child feels with the vacillator is, I'm here, you're present with me, and then all of a sudden you go away, and I, even though you're present in the room, I, you're not here. Mm. And so the child feels a sense of... Um, present, but, but the parent exactly, is disengaged. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So all these, uh, uh, Craig, are in contrast to a secure attachment style you mentioned in your intro, that some of us came from really good homes where we were known, seen, valued, and cared for. And we would describe that person as a person who had a secure parenting experience as a child. And they, they grow up and they naturally know how to create security in relationships. These others are what we call the insecure attachment styles. And so many books are about how to fix the kid. This is a book about how to work on us as parents, how one small change in you can make a big change in your kids. And that's so key because, again, given to the notion, as Kay mentioned, that we typically will model after the parenting style of our parents, good or bad, uh, if that's all we have to go upon, uh, my goodness, uh, that can be very problematic, especially, as you suggest, if the vast majority of us did not come from homes where mom and dad were perfect. Then what do you do? And oftentimes, as you point out, we look at it as trying to fix things with the kids when oftentimes what's going on with the kids is a direct result from the parenting style. A look at how we love our kids kids, the five love styles of parenting, and how one small change in you can result in one big change in your kids. Mylon and Kay Yurkovich with us tonight. We'll be back with more insights as this edition of Lifeline continues. Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. How we love our kids, the five love styles of parenting. And, and Richard reminds me, aren't you going to let listeners know, by the way, that Mylon is one of the co-hosts on New Life Live? And I thought, yeah, you know, that's that that's that over 40 thing again that I, I keep reading about. <laughs> Indeed, of course, the program with our good friend Steve Otterburn, weekday afternoons at 1 p.m. right here on KFAX. And and, and a, a million apologies, uh, Mylon, if I may. <laughs> oh, no, not necessary at all. Hey, as we're talking all. about these styles here, I, I like what you said, Joe just prior to the break, the notion that so often we approach this from the standpoint of trying to fix our kids, when if at first we would focus on, well, dare I dare say it, fix our parenting styles, sure. there might be the real key. Give us some insights from both of your perspectives, if you would, uh, as we kind of sit down and look at the list. We have to analyze, of course, uh, mom's parenting style, dad's parenting style, and then where do we go from there? Well, I think when Jesus spoke to the Pharisees, in um, uh, the Gospels, uh, uh, he said to them, you know, the pupil cannot rise above the teacher, but when fully trained will be just like the teacher. Mm. And he was saying to that to them uh, after he called them blind guides. And he said, 
you know, the people of Israel can't see me because you can't see me. And he said, they're not going to get any higher or more elevated in their capacities than you. And I think it's a good passage to help us understand that how we're trained is about as far as we're going to go until we choose to get further training. So, again, as a pleaser, I was a fear-based parent. The vacillators are very shame-based parents, and they also fluctuate between being overly and uh, often rescuing and intrusive with their child to distant and angry, and so they, they vacillate back and forth. And the avoiders tend to be very much about task and mastery. And this can also, Craig, create a, a triangulation in the marriage where uh, the rescuing parent is, is more empathetic and has more, shall we say, um, uh, empath, em, empathy for the child. And then the avoiders less empathetic you know, empathic, and then the parents are arguing about what should happen to the child without stopping and asking, are you balanced and am I balanced, you know, in our assessments? And maybe, as you said earlier, we need to ask and balance each other out a little bit more. This really needs to be a team effort, in other words. This is not dad picking on mom or vice versa. Well, it sure happens a lot. Yeah, it does happen a lot. And I, I think an important question, we ask a great diagnostic question in our first book, which looks at these lifestyles in marriage. You know, do you have a memory of comfort from your own childhood where a parent saw that you were distressed and they noticed that you were emotionally upset about something and they sought you out and really listened to you and drew out your heart and, you know, offered comfort so you left that experience feeling relief. And surprisingly, about 80% of our audiences don't have one memory like that. So comfort is a big part of emotional connection, and avoiders don't know how to do it, and pleasers are afraid of negative feelings. They avoid them. You know, vacillators are so preoccupied that they often aren't able to give their kids comfort because they're trying to comfort themselves. And And, and their world is either good or bad. It's just all good or all bad. And then that lifestyle that we haven't even talked about yet, you know, the people that come from really difficult homes that end up being controllers or victims, um, you know, they they just don't have any memories. In fact, the thing, they didn't get comfort. They actually got, their parents were stress makers instead of stress reducers. Um, so this whole idea of learning to emotionally connect and, and comfort each other um, was really transforming for us in our marriage, and it really helped us um, learn how to emotionally connect to our kids as well. And a lot of this, Kate, does it come down to learning how to bring about a balance of the good things from all five love styles? Is that what the goal is here in the end? I think the goal is to really look at your love style as an injury. In other words, as an avoider, I didn't get emotional connection in my family, and I was very unable to do it with my own kids. When I realized that, I had to take responsibility for that lack of training in my own home. And I had to learn to know what my feelings were. I had to learn to be able to articulate them. And the more comfortable I got in expressing emotions and accepting comfort for myself, the more I was able to do it for my children. So each of these styles sort of is representative of an injury from your own family. And taking responsibility to really understand that and how it hampers your parenting and, and growing towards a more um, secure um, style where you really have the capacity to uh, connect and to relate um, on an emotional level and to listen well. Um, you know, so often we see our kids' behavior and we just react to the behavior without ever saying, why is this child behaving this way? What stresses them? 
We don't ask enough questions to even sometimes understand that. And, you know, this is such an important key because, Mylon, you touched on this earlier. I mean, certainly from an empowerment standpoint, and this is true in any relationship, the one that we have control over ultimately is ourselves. If we start working on ourselves, understanding our parenting style, seeing the benefits, uh, the disadvantages, and, and beginning to work on that, that certainly is the one key that we can control. But I suppose, too, there's also the dynamic here, as much as there is the parenting style, then there's just the kid's style, so to speak, the kid's personality. In the book, you talk about the free-spirited, the determined, the sensitive, the introverted, the premature. Then I guess there's sort of the meshing of your parenting style with the child's, uh, how would we say it, Mylon, parenting needs? Well, I think parenting needs is a very good term. I wish we would have used that in the book. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, yes, you're right. It's um, every child's unique, and a lot of people, especially in evangelical Christianity, want to create cookie-cutter formulas for how to raise a kid. And some kids are what we call a highly sensitive child, and, and they they are perhaps sensitive to touch and light and sounds, and and they're fussier and and yet if they're put into the same plan as, as a child who's not that way, they, they really cave under the pressure, and their life is not a happy one. Uh, I think we can have the same standards but different approaches to each child. There needs to be a lot of flexibility then because your parenting style may not match their parenting needs, and every child within the family, three, four, five kids, whatever, may all indeed, as unique individuals, have different needs. Oh, absolutely. You know, that's so true. And, you know, I think anybody who's had more than one child realizes the, the truth of that, but in the same respect, we all do need to be really understood and loved and known, and, you know, we ask a question in our seminars, how many of you felt you had parents who deeply knew you, um, knew what made you tick, knew what your likes and dislikes were, um, knew what your struggles and stresses were, and again, there's a there's a, just a minority of people who raise their hands, and so every child really needs to be deeply known and valued and loved, and um, to the degree that we receive that as kids, you know, then we know how to do it, but if we didn't have parents who deeply knew us, then we're, we're going to be lacking those skills, so this is really a, a Even book. awareness. And awareness, that's right. Um, I mean, I parented for 15 years with no awareness that I was really parenting as an avoider, and... My last, our fourth child, um, got the best of us. And, mm-hmm. you know, you can see her ability to emotionally connect and be able to articulate feelings and um, listen well uh, is just at a higher level. And I would well. suspect, too, here in the end, it, you know, it takes time. It takes an investment because you're getting to not only know the parenting style of your spouse, but also the unique individual needs of your kids. And obviously that number and time increases exponentially based on the size of your family. Uh, But that said, I would imagine, Mylon, we shouldn't feel overwhelmed by this task. I think we need to feel like I can start any time to get better. Um, There's uh, a, a very prominent physician some years ago who said, you know, if we provide good enough parenting, um, it will be adequate. Uh, we're not trying to be the super parent, and we're not trying to be the worst one on the block either. We're trying to get better and improve. And this thing called sanctification that the Bible talks about, that we should be growing over the course of a lifetime, we ask many people in our audiences, how many of you ever felt as though your parents were growing over the course of your childhood and adolescence? And again, very few hands go up. You know, that I never saw growth. So it's a gradual thing, isn't it? You know, the 
concept of growth in the Bible. It's like seasons and time and fruit and fruit bearing. It's, it's, a, it's a function of time and growth. The book, again, is entitled How We Love Our Kids, The Five Love Styles of Parenting, One Small Change in You, One Big Change in Your Kids. The new book, by the way, published by Waterbrook, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. Also, more information on both the ministry of Mylan and Kay and information on the book on their website, howwelove.com. That's howwelove.com. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.